BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Earmark. Ear Simon. Earmark. <laughs> I've never noticed you do that for you. Ear Simon. What's up with your big bad self? Uh, Although obviously there's, you're not quite as big as you used to be because you're looking fabulous. Yeah. But you um, are very bad. I'm bad because I can't quite get used... To, well, two things. I can't quite get used to the fact that uh, we're on the wrong time. I can't quite... Well, we're not listening to the podcast, so it's... No, so anybody could be listening at any time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it the other be thing like three is o'clock in the morning. The last time we were two, I just recovered from losing my voice. So now, if I do that, I feel like I'm sort of tempting fate. We're actually coming from the Today Radio Force Today program. Is this where the Today program comes from? The Today program. This is. Can probably, I do a Today style interview on you? This is probably Justin Webb. So Simon, yes. Can you just answer the question? Well, what was no, the just question? answer the question. What was? It's the not question? a difficult question. Just answer the question. What was the question? I'm sorry, that's not the question that I asked you. Well, well, I'm oh, sorry, that's the end of time. Now uh, it's uh, time for travel. They don't do travel. <laughs> <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're in Mitchell Hussein's chair, and, and this is Justin Webber. Is it? Or Nick Robinson. Okay. Um, well, here we are. So this is a slightly... So everything is slightly odd because... Everything is slightly odd. The intro and the out... The times are out of kilter. Um, will be slightly longer than normal because our show is slightly shorter than normal. Uh, podcast fans don't need to worry. But because of Racing from Chilcot, it meant that this show uh, went out, like, at midday. Yeah. Which is odd. Uh, so the podcast... So, you, so this is what you say, went out at midday, because it's already happened. Of course it has, yes. by, the, by the time... It has already happened. Oh, but this is before <laughs> the show. I can't, I can't cope. Anyway, l- let me ease you into the show. Please do that. Please ease me into the show. Uh... It's an email from Nick Eddards, E-D-A-R-D-S. He says, yes, there really is a W missing from my name. It got omitted Very good. from a birth certificate around the turn of the 19th century. So it's a typo. <laughs> is that how it happened? It, so they were it was generally, genuinely a typo. That's like the whole buttle-tuttle thing in, um, in Brazil. You want to be very careful. <laughs> anyway, so they were the Edwards family, and now the Eddards family. Anyway, <laughs> snacks on a plane. <laughs> Dear Sinister and Dexter, I'm a Sydney-based... <laughs> Ex-Pat Pom. Okay. An ex-Pat Pom. Yeah. Uh, and an event photographer who sometimes has to drive 12 miles or more to a location. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> has to drive 12 miles. That's a joke. I'm oh, sorry, 12 miles. Okay, I'll do that again. Sometimes has to drive 12 hours or more. Oh, fine. Sorry. So, so, you, so you said it and you didn't even realise why it was funny. It's like sometimes I have to walk to the end of my street for a location. So apologies. Okay. Anyway. 12 hours or more to a location before I break out the cameras and get busy. On these long drives, I have recently discovered that the might of wittertainment keeps me wide awake and protects me from the creatures of the night and day. The creatures of the night. Specifically, kangaroos, wombats and the highway patrol. If you, By the way, when I was driving in Oz just a few weeks ago, we went past the field and then... Mrs. Mayo says, look, it's a field of kangaroos. And it was. Just there, like roaming wild and It's planted. Yeah. Or just growing out the ground. If the creek anyway, specifically kangaroos, wombats and the highway patrol. If you've ever seen what a wombat can do to the front of your car or what the highway patrol can do to your driving license, you would understand what an important part of my life you once again are. Isn't highway patrol in those areas of Australia? Isn't it done by like helicopter? I honestly don't know. All I can say is I drove from Albany to Perth, which is like a five-hour drive. I didn't see one single police car. There's a, no highway patrol at all. There's a Bill Hicks routine, isn't there, about driving on a on a on a, a, a highway in you know out in the desert somewhere in California, and there's a sign which says 
you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the place is policed by airplane. And he says, imagine being stopped by an airplane. How fast would you have to be going? That's very good. But that is California and not Australia. Yeah. The reason for my email is Simon's experience with Australian fauna and their grasp of sarcasm. Australian crows, or ravens, are regular visitors to my world. They do have rather distinctive voices, but the ones you played were at best slightly ironic, or perhaps just tired at the end of a long day of killing small defenceless insects and lizards. (laughs) The more raucous individuals have a long, drawn-out cry, which has an emotion all of its own. (coughs) That's the one. Oh, is that the one that you said sound like a sarcastic baby? Yeah, this is like a yeah. Okay. Oh, <laughs> that's just genius. Oh, really? You've had such a hard day, really. <laughs> Australian birds. They they all sound like this. They got so you when you were in Australia, did you literally have that outside your window? Yes, yes. So when they were filming this thing that I went out to see them filming. They, that's why they have to stop because the sound recorder is going. No, no, I've got another crow bird song, <laughs> as you can imagine. This once caused, according to this email from Nick Eddards, this once caused a TV presenter to be banned from the air for, in the eyes of the powers that be, mimicking a crow and making the vocalisation just a little bit too much like a profane but joyful form of Australian greeting. Go on. That's all, that's where the email finishes. Yeah, I think, yeah. Okay, not, sorry, just, I'm not, do you know what, that, can you, I'm not asking you to say, can you understand that? Well, the Aussies, like, like they're cussing, so I can imagine, can we hear the birds again? And we just imagine what, what the, what the, what the cussing is? What, the, what bird song will go with the bird song? I think it's an encouragement to go somewhere else. What? Anyway, someone got sacked. I can't help you there. You can, because you know what it is, and I, I, don't. I can't hear it. I can't. I, I, you said an encouragement to go somewhere else. Yes, as, as some profane statements are inclined to do. I, ca- I can't, I literally later. can't hear it. Later. Later, I'll tell you later. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's all right, you'll be encouraged by some of the next emails. Okay, fine. You'll be good. reassured. Thank you. And your place in the firmament and the fundament will but, be. But, I mean, you, it, honestly, it's not like me to not get a stupid joke. Now, this is an email from... I'm going to say Stein van Bosserhem. Why are you going to say that? Is that what's written down right, or is it just no, something that you wanted to okay, say? Well, the first name is S-T-I-J-N. Stein? Stein, possibly. Then it's van and then boss and then S-E-G-H-A-M. So S-E... Stein van Bosserhem. Okay, that'll do. Dear Luxembourg, the country, and, and, and Luxembourg, the province. Ah, Okay, here we go. Here no we go. doubt you've been flooded by angry emails from disgruntled... No. <laughs> <laughs> An angry email floods in from disgruntled Belgians and Luxembourgers alike. No, that's probably not the official word. I think the official word... Luxembourgians? No, I think they're Luxembourgeois. Genuinely, I th- genuinely think that's right, but our top team will check. I do know that the, the, the Observer corrected my thing to say Luxembourgish. OK, anyway, following Simon's rather cocky rebuttal of Mark's perfectly sensible question about the true nature of Luxembourg. Thank you. Well, as a Belgian, says Steen van Bosserhem, 
Yes. I feel perfectly entitled to help you clear up this mess. Thank you. There are, in, see, we were both right. Okay. There are indeed two entities called Luxembourg. Right. One is the independent country of Luxembourg. Right. The one that was obviously foremost in Simon's mind. Yes. However, Luxembourg is also the name of a Belgian province. I guess a province is the equivalent of a county in England. It is the most southern province of the country. It borders the country of Luxembourg and its capital is Arlon. So Mark is right, there is also a Luxembourg in Belgium. I hope that's made matters somewhat right. Right. And congratulations to Mark on getting the pronunciation of Van Gogh absolutely spot on. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. So here's, how weird is that? So there's a country of Luxembourg and then just over the border there's Luxembourg. So you go over the border into Belgium. Where are we? We're in Luxembourg. Luxembourg. We just, no, just, the yeah, just went there. I mean, how unimaginative can that be? <laughs> That's right. We're in a new... Wait, what, what so there's a new land. What shall we call it? Luxembourg. Just in Luxembourg. I'll do it again. Luxembourgers is apparently... I'm going to stick with Luxembourgeois. I don't know that that's right. Is it Luxembourgers? Apparently our top team looking it up on Wikipedia... Oh, I, I'm sorry. You looked, well, excuse me for anyway, this, this, questioning the looking it up on Wikipedia. Duncan Darach Thompson, whilst mocking Mark for asking if Luxembourg was in Belgium. Yes. If he's not careful, both residents of Luxembourg will write in and complain. <laughs> Simon said somewhat incredulously, how can a country be inside another country? Well, such a thing is rare but not unheard of. They are known as enclaves. To be an enclave, you have to be 100% surrounded by one other country. There are three. Right. The Vatican City. Oh, which, which is, is surrounded by, by... Italy. Italy. San Marino, 100% inside Italy. And Lesotho, 100% inside South Africa. Pronounced Lesotho. There you go. Thank okay. you. There are also semi-enclaves that are surrounded by only one country but have a sea border. Sea border, right. These include Monaco, yeah. France, Brunei, Malaysia, and the Gambia, Senegal. Maybe we could visit them on the next cruise. Hello to the apparently touchy and feeling abandoned Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so here is a quiz, which you can... Hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. I saw him this week and he's fine. Is he all right? Yeah, he is. Fine. Is he over it? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know. He's very excited about his TV show, The OA. I know. He talks about nothing else. Yeah. Anyway, here is a quiz which you cannot join in with because this is a podcast. Yeah. I do not want your text. I do not want your emails. There is no prize. Okay. This is for you and everyone through the glass right. taking part in this The Entertainment podcast. Okay. Okay. Fun. It's just for fun. Okay. It's just right. for fun. And, I, and really, you've only got like 10 seconds to answer anyway. Okay. okay. Is it actually a quiz? Well, it's just an intriguing question, okay. I think. Name the six European countries which have the letter K in their names. Not a trick question. Name the six... Norway. Euro <laughs> Norway. <laughs> no. No. Oh. What? Ah. Yeah. Norway. <laughs> okay. Stop right. you, answer. The six... The six... six okay. European countries. That have K somewhere in their name. Yes. Um, Denmark. Denmark is one. Uh... Don't look it up next I'm time. not looking it up. Czechoslovakia. Doesn't exist as a country. But that is half of what... Czech... No. Yugoslavia. The, the other end. Slovakia, sorry. Slovakia is two. Um, sorry, I'm so slow. No, it's all right. I mean, everyone is... No one okay. else is going one, two, three, okay, hang four, on, hang five, on, hang six. On, hang apart on, apart on. from Simon, the producer. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Um, it's all right, it's all right. Time's up. Okay. Time's up. 
Ukraine. We've got two. Oh, Ukraine, right. Kosovo. Yeah. Turkey. Turkey. Should have got Turkey. Okay. You want to know what you should have got, ladies Go and gentlemen? The United, United Kingdom. Kingdom. <laughs> okay. It's just what Simon Paul is pretending he got five. Liar, liar. Pants, pants on fire. United Kingdom, Slovakia, Turkey, Kosovo, Ukraine. He didn't get Norway. He didn't get... He did not get Norway. <laughs> that was just... That was your genius. <laughs> Remind me never to be a punk Christine with you. Can I just say, if that doesn't make the dumb Britain column of private eye, then somebody on the editorial board there is not doing their job. Can you name all the Prime Ministers of Great Britain with L in their name? Eric Island? No. <laughs> Sorry. Doesn't count. <laughs> <coughs> Hello to Jack Blackburn at the Times. What was Matt Withers in London. I'm afraid to tell you, Simon, I'm afraid to tell you, Simon made an almighty error on last week's podcast. Good. Discussing Luxembourg and Mark's geographical Excellent. blind spot. Thank you. Simon said that the Duchy shared a national anthem with Britain. Yeah. This is rubbish. Untrue. Luxembourg's rousing national anthem is the track Luxembourg on. from Elvis Costello's Trust no, album. It's Ons Himecht, which means our homeland. It's quite unlike that of Britain. Simon is confusing his European microstates. It is Liechtenstein's national anthem, Oben am Jungen Rhein, High on the Young Rhine, which shares the melody of God Save the Queen. This leads to hilarious scenes when England meet Liechtenstein at football and the chucklesome England fans drown out the rival anthem with their own. <laughs> oh, how the laughs must flow. Can you, can you get Luxembourg by Elvis Costello to play at the end of this since uh, well, we've had so much Luxembourg thing? What we can do is we can play this, of course. This is Ons Himecht, the Luxembourg National Anthem. And, and, the, and the words go? Ons Himecht, Ons Himecht, Onsi Onsi, Onsi Mecht. Der Jungen spielen Fußball in Denmark. Except. I think that's enough. Provitz that's enough national anthem for now. Is anyway, we don't need to play you the Liechtenstein national anthem because you know that very well. Oh, here is. It is. God save our Liechtenstein. No. Long. No, no, no. It's not. It's Oben am Jungen Rhein. Oben am Jungen Rhein. Da 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 da. The reason we're not standing is because this is the Liechtenstein national anthem. And why we hold we, we, we love Liechtenstein and Liechtensteiners, but <laughs> Liechtensteinians. All right, what's this? Um, when the summer day is over and the meaning star has blown, I sit beneath beside the fireside oh, some with a dreary heart alone. Then rises internationally. Like, no, socialist international. Shining bright in nature's glee. Stalin is a hero. My own dear Ellen Vannin. What? You're looking at me meaningfully. What's that then? With its green hills by the sea. Don't don't sing it again. I've got no idea. No, I'm not singing. I'm finishing it. Oh, good. What is it? The Ellen Vannin. It's what? Isle of Man, dear. Oh, right. What about the Isle of Man? That's the the song that they sing. Actually, it's not the National Anthem, because actually the National Anthem is the Ocean of Burrell and the Hills of Thing Thong, which is rubbish, but the one that they sing is the Isle of Man. John Catterfield in St Albans. Um, I'm right to call out... St Albans. ...the good doctor for deliberate trickery of his loyal church members. (laughs) Is it cunning trickery? Simon. 
You know what you've done, and it was underhand. What was it? Two weeks ago, Matt in Aberdeen explained the rules, spelling out what many long-term listeners have instinctively known. If Simon does not praise any aspect of the film when interviewing his guest, then, quite frankly, he didn't like the movie. Listening to his interview last week, the directors of Captain Marvel, I played along and confidently, but disappointingly, predicted Simon disliked the film. A brilliant interview as always, but just a single throwaway piece of praise. Brie Larson is astonishing in the role. Well, he duped us. Like Wes Craven, Simon casually explained the rules and at the first opportunity... Broke them. Broke them all, revealing during Mark's review that he actually loved the film. That's off to you, Simon. You win this one, but I'm not forgiving easily. And you did Supertastic love it, didn't you? You absolutely loved it. And that obviously wasn't evident through the interview. So I Well, that's interesting. So you were playing your cards close to your chest. Yeah, I mean, but not deliberately so. I just did the interview the way the interviewer appeared. Do you think you're, you're trying to develop a sort of man of mystery thing in, in yes. later life? Yes. Are you trying to appear more, more sort of So, enigmatic? movie star, yes. if you can guess whether I like your I have film. seen your film. I hate it. <laughs> I shall reserve judgment until I'm on the show on my own. Yes. So I shall apply those rules to Jordan Peele when he appears on the show next week to talk okay. about us. A movie I'd love to have met Jordan Peele. Was I've it... seen the film. And... Well, as you know, I wasn't looking forward to it. No, but you did enjoy it, right? I did enjoy it. Good. Very, very much. Good. Is it scary? Yes. Is it creepy? Uh, yes. Is it ooky and kooky and mysteriously spooky? Is it what? Creepy and kooky and altogether ooky. I don't think it's kooky. I okay. think... I think you. I th- my my prediction is yeah. you're going to love it. Okay, great, good. That's my prediction. Good. I could do with loving pa- the film. Uh, there's a thing here somewhere, which I think you might like. Oh yeah, here we go. I keep getting a thing from the BBC, BBC Culture Amp. Culture Amp. What's yeah, the, what's I the don't cul- know what it is. BBC via Culture Amp. Some what some you, survey. I don't understand what it is. They keep sending it to me. Don't do your emails while I'm, I'm not doing. It just came in and it says BBC. So I think you know. Is, is, are we? I don't even know whether we're on air. We're not. It's a podcast. Okay. Okay. You ready? Mm. Norway. <laughs> Imran in London. No, the worst thing about it is I didn't say it as a joke. I said it as a. I told you I have spelling problems. I have really, really big spelling problems. I'm writing about Mark's Witterings on last week's show about the power of horror films when you're in a dark place. This is from Imran in London. Yeah. And, and sort of follows on from yes. Jordan Peele. On Saturday, I was for some reason in a place where nothing excited me. It was like my mind turned everything a dull, dark Grey. Okay. I couldn't bring myself to interact properly with anyone, even when watching my football team come back from behind for a really important win. A result I don't think Simon would have been happy with. You are correct, Imran. I couldn't even bring myself to cheer or celebrate like I normally do. The scariest thing was that I had no idea why I felt this way. This dullness had just fallen on top of me. It just made me want to cry. My instinct was to try and self-medicate with something like Mary Poppins. But after hearing... <laughs> I think you could call Mary Poppins self-medication. Yeah. Well, that's his idea. That's pretty good. <laughs> You can, it should be available on the NHS. That's the advantage of the fact you can take as many Mary Poppins as you <laughs> want. But after listening listener Keith's story about being stood up on a date and watching Alien yeah. on his own... Yeah, which is a good story. ...that horror can help release you from a miserable place for a while, I decided to watch Get Out on Saturday night. I knew the general premise, but had managed to avoid spoilers for the last two years. From the very first scene, I was utterly transfixed. The film creates this sense of foreboding, intrigue and trepidation throughout... 
There are very few jump scares, but enough lighter comedic moments to punctuate the ever-amplifying dread. I know the film is commenting on very real issues, but making it scary and setting it in a world just different enough from ours was what took me out of this world and into Jordan Peele's creation. For an hour and 45 minutes, I sat in a dark room and forgot everything except what was on the screen. When the film finished, I felt almost refreshed and much better. So thank you, Mark, for suggesting a horror film for when you're in a miserable way. Yeah, it does. You're right. It gives you the exact escapism that you need. I hope I won't be feeling like that in a couple of weeks' time, but I'll still go and see Jordan Peele's film Us when it comes out. Uh, Tinkity-tonk and down with the sunken place. P.S., says Imran, after I watched Get Out, I put on Match of the Day and did what I couldn't do earlier. I cheered as Southampton beat Tottenham. Well, thanks very much for rubbing it in. But anyway, it's very interesting because he took your advice. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, I, it's funnily anyway. enough, uh, just after we talked about that, I I ended up doing a, um, a BFI intro for Hellraiser, and I and I I re- remembering again the you know the the, the Salford Keys experience, and it is it is one of the best cinema going experiences I because I was in a really really you know sunken place at that particular point, and going to Salford Keys to see Hellraiser, I will. You know, I will always treasure that as one of the great memories of a horror film just taking me out of everything and putting me in a completely different place. And it really put a spring in my step. And I remember interviewing Wes Craven, who was invoked in a previous email just a minute ago, um, about I interviewed him about Scream. And I said, you know, the thing is that, you know, you do, you, you've always said this thing. Wes Craven always said horror films don't create fear. They release fear, that they're like a kind of celebration and they, you know, they, they're a way of, of releasing things. And he said, I'm really glad you said that because I can't believe how much of my career people have thought that I make nasty movies. I mean, he has made nasty movies. I mean, Last House on the Left is one of the nastiest movies ever made. But a movie like Scream is, you know, it's it's joyous. It's, it's you know, it's a... It's it is. I mean, it's scary, but there's a, there's a there's a real joy in the in in the thrills and in the way that it's playing with. I mean, did you ever see Wes Craven's New Nightmare? Did Robert England come on? Yes, like, yes, he's he a, did. This is a Radio One. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did go and did, see that. That's a, Robert England. That's a really good film. That's where all this postmodern horror stuff comes from. From that film, which you know, and I remember Wes Craven in that having uh, severe doubts about what he was doing. Because of videos and the fact that there were so many, that, young... no, not not Wes Craven, Robert Englund, Robert Englund, yeah, 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 yeah. That's Robert right. Englund having a lot of doubt about what he was doing because so many he'd been he'd done a uh, a meeting or you know a, some kind convention of public appearance or something like that, and a six or seven year old had clearly been watching his films and he yeah. was really freaked out by yeah. the fact that people at that age were watching his pictures. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. We're going back a long way here. Um, <laughs> back to videos. Back to videos. Back to Radio 1. <laughs> Could this be someone At the point that FM was considered to be absolutely fantastic, mate. It was 20 years ago. Someone posted the video of me doing the longest radio show ever, which oh, was 20 years ago this week. It was 20 years ago no, this today. week. today. Yes. Wow. And you had, a, you had to have a nurse in the studio. No, you kept, I didn't. Well, they just, they was, kept, that a, was that a prop? The top producers just got in lots of bits and pieces, like Andy McNabb, the SAS guy. But it does capture the worst moment, which is when I had to interview Mr Blobby because this was 20 years ago and yeah. no show was complete without Mr Blobby. No. But I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not making this up. I thought that they did have somebody regularly checking your blood pressure and things because they thought there was some... I've lost, I've remembered very little of it. Really? Has it all gone? <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, it's kind of on with the show. So there's a slightly shorter show coming up, mm. uh, but then we'll pick it up again in the uh, in the podcast final moments. Yes. As part of our DVD extras. But don't miss the... TV movie and DVD of the week. Yeah, we're going to do both of those in the podcast because we, we didn't do we didn't do them in the program, so which you haven't heard yet. So here comes the short bit. Hello, good afternoon. This is Five Live, and it's Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode to talk movies with you for the next hour. Hello, Simon. I'm discombobulated because we're in the wrong time spot. 
I know, but we're in the wrong time spot because, well, any slot is the right time slot when we're on. Any time is tiffin time, as they say in Carry On Like the Kyber. Uh, do they? Yes, they do. And we're here, obviously, because of the uh, Cheltenham Festival, full coverage uh, on Five Live. So we're, we're basically, we're in, a, we're in this new space, so we're going to expand to fill as much as we can. Okay. Uh, do not text and do not email. Because? Because we're very, very full. <laughs> we have so much to get through. Plus... Ray Fiennes is going to talk about the white crow. Which Ralph. Is, no, obviously not. It's Ray Fiennes. And obviously that's a childish joke. That's quite beneath you. And if he was in this room, you wouldn't be saying it. What, if Voldemort was in the room, you wouldn't call him Ralph? Well, that's the thing. It's not a Voldemort, because it's not a Voldemort project. It's a, this is a Ray Fiennes project. No, I know. Project, I know. So I it's understand. a very exciting thing. Anyway, so we talk Rudolf Nureyev a little bit later uh, with Ray Fiennes. Uh, is your... Computer about to die, by the way. No, because somebody's walked in with an extension lead. Because we're in a different, we're in a different studio that doesn't yes. have any plugs in it. Do we not have to vote to see if you're allowed an extension? <laughs> How long do you want an extension? You're going to have to go on a course now. I know. It's fine. It's a timeless <laughs> joke. Uh, right here we go. Let's uh, let's do some emails. Shaney, Tom, Herb, and Marnie have been on, which sounds like a name of a movie, really. In celebration of our recent tenth anniversary, we set out on a family trip to our local Cineworld in Sheffield with Herb, who's eight. What a great name that is. Herb? Yes. Like Herb Alpert. Herbie rides again. Anyway, Herb is eight, and Marnie, who is six. We went to see Captain Marvel, followed by a pizza. Exciting times. Marnie, possibly spot too young, but we took the decision it was important that she should see the first female lead in a Marvel film. Yeah. What a mistake that was. The kids lobbied, since it was a special occasion, for a ridiculously priced frozen drink sold by this establishment. We agreed. What noise could it make? About 30 minutes towards the end, Marnie, now positioned in her usual spot on my lap, asked me to reach for her drink. On picking it up, the clearly inadequate design, combined with my awkward position, having a six-year-old on my lap, meant, on removing it from the cup holder, the lid separated from the main body of the drink. Oh, no. The lower part of the drink fell to earth, Bouncing, bouncing on the floor in complete slow motion, I then witnessed the frozen drink leaping out of the cup and onto the two people who sat in front of us, a father and a son. Utter shock overwhelmed me both over, utter shock overwhelmed both me and them. Marnie was more concerned with the loss of the overpriced frozen drink. I can only blame the parents. I did not absorb anything that happened in the last 30 minutes of the film. But you absorbed a lot of the frozen drink. So overwhelmed with horror at our actions was I. The second the film finished, I reached over, tapped the dad on the shoulder, offered to purchase them a voucher to view the film again. They refused my offer with such good grace that I can only imagine they must be fellow Wittertainees. Well, that's really kind. So can I just apologise again in full view of the congregation? I am so sorry to have affected your viewing pleasure. Never again will we purchase our children such overpriced frozen drinks. You know, that almost sounded like a confession. Tinkety-tong and down with slush puppies. Uh, From (laughs) Shaney, Tom, Herb and Marnie. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll do the box office top ten fairly shortly. But first of all... First of all... (laughs) Mark. Yes. You know it's Red Nose Day. I do. Comic relief and all that. Yes. Well, this year, we're involved. Are we? There's a special prize draw with a prize money can't buy and a chance to support the work of comic relief. And that money can't buy prize is? A chance to watch a film with us. Wow. Us, this is not the new... Movie. Us, this <laughs> is just you and me. Want to film us with us, and that is a prize that no one would want to buy. Nevertheless, no, no, the no, no, prize no. is the chance to watch a brand new movie at a preview screening with Mark and me, and have a chat about it afterwards. There'll be code compliant snacks. Well, 
hopefully, and no frozen drinks. Listen <laughs> carefully because here's how you enter, plus those terms and conditions which everyone enjoys so much. Okay, so to enter our special Kermode and Mayo prize draw and support comic relief, just text the word FILM to 84903. Once we receive confirmation of your entry, a one-off voluntary donation of £10 will be made to comic relief. You can opt out of the donation by replying CANCEL to your entry confirmation text within 60 minutes. Entry text will be charged at your standard network message rate. You need to be 18 or over and have the bill payer's permission. You also need to live in the UK to be able to enter. For full terms and conditions, visit bbc.co.uk slash wittertainment. The prize draw will close for entries at 11pm on the 31st of March 2019. Please do not enter after this time as your entry will not count, but you will still be charged. Do not enter if you live outside the UK. And if you're listening to the podcast or on BBC Sounds, please don't enter after the closing date. The winner will be randomly selected and notified by phone between the 1st of April and the 2nd of April 2019 and we'll announce the winner on our show on Friday 5th of April. So a reminder of how to enter you just need to text the word film to 84903. Entry texts are charged at your standard message rate. A one-off voluntary donation of £10 will be made to Comic Relief. You can opt out by replying cancel to your entry confirmation. The draw closes 11pm on 31st of March 2019 so please don't enter after this time as your entry won't count but you will still be charged. Okay, that's very good. And everyone's very happy and we stuck to the script. I think, yes, we did. And and you've got your extension. Yes, I have. So so everything is fine. Everything is fine. I have now, I voted for an extension and I got one. Thank you very much. So congratulations. An uncontroversial start to the show. Uh, Box office top 10, disappointingly starting at 10. Cold Pursuit. Yeah, it was okay in the first version, not so okay in the second version. An unnecessary remake. Alita Battle Angel is at nine. Had gone in to see it with not huge expectations, but actually was kind of rather pleasantly surprised. But as I've said before, you know, I'm the person who thought Jupiter Rising was quite fun. Uh, The Kid Who Would Be King is at number eight. I've spoken to so many people who've been to see The Kid Who Would Be King and absolutely loved it. Really, really, you know, really enjoyed it. I think it's got real charm. I think the best thing about it is that it's a film that believes in its young heroes. It's a film that paints a portrait of the world in which the future is in the hands of youngsters and that's a very good place for it to be and it has kind of you know fantastical harry potter style special effects and a and a kind of you know let's do the show here quality i, I really enjoyed it uh, the aftermath is at number seven we had an uh, an email last week i think from somebody who said they'd been to see the aftermath and they were they were very impressed by the way it looked and I think that's the point. It is a well-designed film, but the problem with it is, you know, set immediately after World War Two, and it's this kind of, you know, romantic drama with this political backdrop going on in the background. But in the end, you do end up watching it and thinking, mm, you know, nice frocks and suits and, and handsome houses, but not much else going on. Uh, Green Book is at number six. Uh, to, to quote Simon Mayo, this time the racist is in the front seat. Uh, Number five, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Which is now in its sixth week and still, you know, still drawing audiences as big as ever. I think it's a very good uh, uh, conclusion to the series. I assume it's the conclusion. I I, I thought it was really magical to look at and I really enjoyed it. Instant fam at number four. Having gone in worrying about it being another one of those annoying Marky Mark Wahlberg films, I was surprised to find that actually it had more substance than I'd expected, partly because... You know the uh, the director has some experience of uh, fostering, and it's actually it's it's a much better film than either its poster or its trailer suggests. 
Yeah, he's one of those actors where you think, which Marky Mark That's are right. going to get? Are we getting good Marky Mark or bad Marky Mark? Lego Movie 2, is it 3? <laughs> Honestly, it is like a football score. It it? Lego Movie 2, at 3. I enjoyed it, I laughed. Now, Fighting With My Family is number yeah. two. So it's been knocked off the number one spot, but unsurprisingly yes, so. I don't, I don't think Stephen Merchant is going, well, who'd have thought that? I know. See that coming. So Ellie has, been, has sent us an email. Yeah. I saw Fighting With My Family last night. I was on the verge of tears throughout the entire film, but thought to myself, come on, you can't cry at this. It's a funny film about wrestling. Stop being so sensitive. So I managed to keep myself from actually shedding tears until the final scene, where me and my boyfriend looked at each other both teary-eyed, and I let myself fully weep. The crying continued as the credits rolled, as I went to the toilet, in the foyer, and as I walked out of the cinema. Can't really explain why I had such an emotional reaction. The film is so funny, isn't without flaws, but I just really resonated with Paige, who is the main character. Yes. Uh, I'm a girl in my early 20s, currently in my first real job, a job that I hate, but I'm supposed to love, and is a great opportunity, but I'm struggling and feel out of my depth. But I too should stop whinging, work harder, and be the best marketing project assistant I can be. This narrative isn't unique. Tons of movies tell the story, but FWMF felt different and made me feel different, and it's clear that it was made with so much love. I mean, from Ellie. I think nice. it's re- really well judged. You know, Congratulations to Stephen Merchant on making the script manage to tell that story in a way that makes perfect sense. It takes just the right amount of liberties with the truth. I, I do think Florence Pugh is fantastic in it. I think she's just... A, it's a really great bit of casting and it's a great performance. And, you know, as somebody who the only thing they know about wrestling was remembering back to World of Sport back in back on Saturday afternoons back in the 1970s, um, because obviously wrestling then went to America, which is where, which is where it kind of now lives. And this is a story about a British family... Um, you know, a family of wrestlers and one of them going to, to to the WWE and attempting to find her feet. So, you know, she's fighting with my family, but also finding your feet. I, I really liked it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well judged and empowering and funny and, you know, and just close enough to the to the truth to make it, you know, have that kind of that smack of authenticity. But, it, you know, but also it was able to... What's that noise suddenly happening? I think it's another printer. Isn't it? You're yeah, coming to another studio with another printer. That's just unbelievable. What is it? Uh, it's, it's is it the news. complaint about me getting an extension no, for my computer? No, it's the news. Is it? Okay. I, so if, if we're short of a thing or two, I can always read the <laughs> just news. Just read the news. Because that won't be controversial at all. <laughs> so the box office number one is uh, is Captain Marvel. Yeah. Let me, and, and so much correspondence on this. And so. you absolutely loved it. I was lukewarm about it, but I... You know, I was I, red hot about it. Yeah, you were red hot about it. Emma Bennett in Rotherham. I have to say I wholeheartedly agreed with Mark's assessment. Although the film was good, it lacked the punch-the-air moments of Wonder Woman. And given that Carol Danvers has already been trumpeted as the most powerful character in the MCU, there seemed to be a real lack of jeopardy. Also, in terms of female characters, I feel Marvel still has a way to go. Um, Hannah Cocaine. All right, Hannah. Generally, I find myself in agreement with the good doctor. However, this week, I find myself so utterly nettled by his opinion. Nettled? That I had to write in. As it, as it nettled meaning bothered? Yes. Okay. Annoyed. Uh, okay, fine. Captain Marvel, not magical. What film were you watching? One of the reasons I love this show is that you're both so aware of the importance of representation. This is the first film in the series with a female title character. Marvel has been running this film series arc since 2008 that is 11 years without a female fronted film Mm -hmm. i attended the screening with bated breath just hoping for an entertaining 128 minutes what i got was so much more than that captain marvel is a fiercely witty 
gripping movie with electrifying action sequences and a killer soundtrack. But more than that, it's a movie which I found at points incredibly moving. There comes a point in the film where Captain Marvel gets to unleash the full extent of her powers. It was one of the most liberating moments of cinema I have ever watched. Wow. I know the Marvel films are just popcorn movies, but this moment of a woman unleashing herself and becoming literally invincible was magical to me. I left the film feeling self-assured and powerful, like I'd absorbed some of those photons myself. I feel like in this instance you are criticising the film on unreasonable grounds. You decided you wanted to be in a different film, a film it never sold itself as being. This is not Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy is Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like saying The Exorcist didn't have enough laughs in it. Or The Revenant is too outdoorsy. I do like that. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate you have Can the I right... Can I just say The Revenant is too outdoorsy? I appreciate you have the right to have your own option, uh, opinion about the film, but you are wrong and should agree with me. <laughs> okay. You should listen to Simon on this one and go see the film again. Okay. Uh, Ellie West, my husband and I have just returned from a showing of Captain Marvel at one of the city's many cinemas. We have listened to the words of your bad selves and so expected to enjoy the film, but left room to be underwhelmed. Nothing could be further from our experience. Having followed the Marvel franchise since the first Iron Man, we had great hopes for this film and it more than satisfied them. The themes follow on from the jubilation of Black Panther with positive representation and diversity. If you can sum up some of the best of Black Panther with a celebration of Pan-African culture, an experience you can sum up in the best of Captain Marvel with a band of strong women and a ginger cat fighting internal and external battles and coming off on top. Where Black Panther has token white characters, and it felt natural, Captain Marvel has token male characters, and it felt equally right. Where Superman is an allegory for the hero inside every man, Captain Marvel is the allegory for the determination and spirit of every woman. When Mark said he felt... He liked, the, he liked the film but didn't love it. It's because it wasn't for him. This is for every woman and little girl who hasn't had a hero to aspire or look up to. This is clearly Marvel righting the wrongs that occurred with the early Black Widow writing and direction and a continuation of the modernism and culture shift seen in Black Panther. Okay. There's, there's loads more. Do you want to chip in at that point? Well, just to say, um, I agree with the fact that it's it's really important and great that we are now at the point that, that Marvel have given us uh, this superhero. I, st I remain underwhelmed by the film itself i liked it i didn't love it um and i can't pretend otherwise but i'm delighted that that people like it as much as they do because i think it is a you know it is a good thing but i would be i mean the one thing i would say is occasionally i get told oh well you only like that because it ticks the you know your political boxes and um and i've always said it's not true i i in the end it comes down to me for two things. Firstly, whether I think, you know, whether I, I like the ideas and secondly, whether I like the film. And in this case, I, I like the idea of the film more than I like the film itself. I don't dislike the film at all. I just don't love it and I can't pretend that I do. Sally in Gloucestershire, in the nursing lecturer's nook, it was brilliant. The portrayals on the, film, on the screen were people I know in real life. I was a single mother. I've worked where female voices are not valued and I've been told that I couldn't do X because I'm female. Seeing myself on the screen really made the film for me and my daughter called me afterwards having watched it with her boyfriend to say that she recognised the conversations between mum and daughter as ones we'd had. If this is what white men feel like when they see a male lead superhero, I can see why they believe that they can take on anyone. That's a very smart comment. Isabel Barclay, age 20. I'm just reading that out because that's how she signed it. I'm a big fan of the MCU and Captain Marvel is the first comic book I ever bought. So I was very excited to see this movie. Did it, however, live up to the pressure and hype I set upon it? Sort of. I love the characters and the many arcs that were portrayed by them. 
I like the explanation of how Captain Marvel got her powers and especially how she used them. The acting was impressive, the visuals were amazing. With a great 90s soundtrack containing many of the cultural references my father has worked so hard to expose me to. He has a spreadsheet. <laughs> However, I find that, that as a Marvel movie, it was messy and perhaps too much of a filler movie between the bookends of Infinity War and Endgame. This movie had so much riding on it, not just a new super, superhero, but also Marvel's first female-led movie by its first female director. Unfortunately, it felt clumsy and a wasted opportunity for something greater. But, it, you know, it has proved a huge and resounding success. And as many of those emails demonstrate, it is working for a very large amount of the audience. I, mean, I wanted it to be quirkier and odder. I wanted it to be more like the co-director's previous indie films. Can I, can I ask you about that? Yeah. Even though that's one of the points that is made by one of our... Yeah correspondence that what you wanted it to be yeah. is sort of not the point no i mean I, I i agree but equally um all you can do is say it's like for example if i go and see a horror movie i want it to be a certain i i want it to do certain things and as far as um captain marvel was concerned i wanted to like it more than i did and I, i'll say this again i don't dislike it I, I just didn't feel the magic i just have the subject of horror movies yeah Last week on the programme, we were discussing Us, the new Jordan Peele. Yeah. And I was saying, yeah, I don't want to see that. Well, I've seen You've it. seen it now? Yeah. And? I want to tell you. Okay. Simon Lewis, I took my daughter to see Captain Marvel on Friday. She has been brought up on Marvel films as well as Star Wars and everything else Dad loves. I really liked the film. Right. I thought Brie Larson does an amazing job. It's funny, exciting. I thought Brie Larson was brilliant. Yeah. I thought some of the girl power moments were a little heavy-handed. Um, I'm just a girl playing in particular fight scene, but nice to have another slightly different feel to a Marvel film. But that's not important. What was important for me was the view of the 14-year-old sitting next to me. I was nervous. I always dread the day when she turns to me and says, I don't like superheroes anymore, <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. The second the film finished, she turned to me and said, that was the best film no, ever. She said, that was awesome. Great. Even better than Wonder Woman. And then what Simon has written is, she kicked ass. Now, my guess is that his daughter, Yvette, said she kicked ass. Yeah. Because kicking ass sounds like something that happens on a farm with a landowner coming up, <laughs> you know, chucking some Come oil. here. <laughs> I want to kick your ass. Anyway, I'm just saying that's that. That's just... Anyway, we then spent the next hour talking about the portrayal of women in films and how she felt about watching it most, about how she felt watching mostly men in superhero films over the last 10 years, but how that was finally changing. Great stuff. Simon Lewis and Yvette Lewis, age 40. But, I th you know, I'd like to add, I think it's brilliant that the film is having those responses, and that's great. I mean, in the end, as we've always said before, you know, the success or failure of those movies isn't defined by what sniffy critics say about them. It's defined by what the audience get out of them. And if our, if those, if it's getting those responses, then it's working and I'm delighted. Uh, so Captain Marvel is the UK's number one and it is very number one. Just look. Very it's number one. It's like hugely number one. <laughs> it's like in a court case when you're found very guilty. Yeah. It's very number one. If you are wondering why we're talking films uh, at this point on this particular day, it's because of uh, full coverage of Cheltenham. Uh, of Five Live, which is why why we are where we are yeah. in a huge cavernous studio. There. Yeah. Um, so we got we can do a couple of reviews here. Out this week is is Benjamin the Simon Amstel movie. Benjamin, okay? I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. We can't review it as such because we're in it. We're only in it briefly, but it yeah. doesn't matter. There is a light. So no, there is. There's no reason why you can't review it. So it's written directed by Simon Amstel, who made Carnage, which yes. was this some um, sort of strange comedy about veganism, which I actually sort of rather liked. This is very autobiographical. He when he came on the program, he described it as a sort of form of uh, therapy. Uh, Colin Morgan is Benjamin, who is kind of sort of standing for Simon Amstel. 
Amstel. He's this upcoming filmmaker. He's racked with doubt. He's had some success, made something that people liked. He's now gone on make some, made something else, which was this film, which was basically about his inability to love and has been completely overtaken by the fact that he keeps sticking these scenes of this monk, this Buddhist monk in it. And nobody has told him that he shouldn't do that. And that's completely unended the film. And at the, so he's made a film about his inability to love. And at the same time that everything is falling apart, he meets somebody, Noah, played by Phoenix Brassard, and he suddenly starts to realise the possibility of it. So it's about an artist who believes that he is unable to love, who's made art about being unable to love, actually realising that he is about to fall in love. Hi, I'm Benjamin. Hi, nice to meet you. Great gig, man. Mm, you're really good at singing. Congratulations. Thanks. We're kind of a mess, but... No, you were, you were very clean, very tight, very solid. And you're French too. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. I'm a big fan of Le Mis. Oh. Noah's studying music at Guildhall. Oh, really? Wow, that's the good one, isn't it? Have you had any drugs yet? You should come to a screening with me of Benjamin's film. Oh, yes, I've made a film. I'm a film person. What's it about? My inability to love. But I'm fine now. And we're writing a musical about depression. Are you hungry? We should eat, maybe, rather than standing and talking. Better be sitting and eating, right? I know a vegetarian place. Oh, I'm vegan. Me too. We should get married. Or we could just eat some vegan things. They have veg dumplings. Well, we should get dumplings then. You like dumplings, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Dumplings? I can't eat dumplings. Okay, I see the band will come. Oh, the band, now we're alive, yeah. Okay, funny other front? Yes, great news. Dumplings. <laughs> oh, that was horrific. <laughs> You see, the thing is, we're laughing, but of course we are, because of course, of course, I, I like it because, you know, I'm, I'm involved in when Simon Amsel came in before. He said, what do you think? I said, I, I really like it. The Spectator said, Mark Herbert and Simon Mayo playing Mark Herbert and Simon Mayo are seen reviewing No Self on their show. Where they're disappointed the pretentious monk has no place in this film at all. Why didn't the producers say less monk? I laughed, prop- I properly laughed and not for the first time and not for the last. So there we are. We stormed it. Of course we liked it. We were great in it. Greg Hamilton says the film is charming and sincere, easily surpassing the six laugh test, also tinged with a sense of sadness and longing. Having heard Simon on the show last year and being aware of Mark and Simon's cameo, I waited in excitement and beamed as soon as I heard Mark's withering critique. I'm sure we can all agree Simon is a class above, but I think he means (laughs) Simon Amsterdam. No, he means you. Because you deliver the the killer line. You're the one who says the thing about he's not everyone. Did you enjoy it? Did I enjoy the film? Mm -hmm. Of course I did. Um, I've been told you have two minutes. To, oh, OK, uh, fine. Uh, to, to tell us about... So very quickly, so The Prodigy. So this is this uh, horror film from Nicholas McCarthy. He made uh, Pact and the Devil's Door. Starts with scenes of an evil serial killer being evil and being gunned down by the police. At the same time, a young baby is born. The film cuts between the two. Now jump ahead. Eight uh, years or so. The kid is now eight. Starts to behave funny. Starts to talk funny in his sleep. Oh, mother thinks, what's he saying? She gets a tape recorder, records the stuff he's saying in his sleep, takes it to a specialist. Is it mumbo-jumbo? No, it has cadence. It's a language. The specialist says, your child is not possessed. He's haunted by a a reincarnation of somebody and you must do something about this immediately and you must do it now because some of the things that the reincarnated spirit is saying in your child are not nice. Here's a clip. Sarah, I was so relieved when you called. So you must be Miles. Watch the silver eye. Just watch. The regression won't work if you're in the room. Is this going to hurt him? No. It's hypnosis. Miles goes out of body when the invading soul is present. He won't even remember the experience. The goal here is to identify the person who has returned. And this is important. Find out what they want. I'm going to be candid with you, Sarah. This may be your last chance. Miles is eight now. 
Soon the invading soul will have control. And Miles will be gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so it's hugely derivative, but knowingly so. It's a little bit of Audrey Rose, a bit of Charles play, a bit of Bad Seed, a touch of the omen, a smidge of Goodnight Mummy, a hint of Village of the Damned, and a line from The Exorcist when the kid actually says, Mother, what's wrong with me? So zero marks for originality, but as nuts and bolts scary kids' movies, you know, horror movies go, it's actually quite fine. There was a couple of shivery moments. There's some nicely, nasty, nicely nasty twists. It didn't do anything that was unexpected, but it also wasn't uh, as uh, it wasn't the crushing disappointment. I thought, you know, surprises were few, but the disappointment were fewer cost something like six millions already taken 18 proving once again that uh you know nuts and bolts efficiently put together horror movies are one of the few things that uh that studios can rely on in these unreliable times i thought it was actually fine and there were a couple of moments where i thought oh that's a you know that's a little bit shivery so zero for originality but six out of ten for putting the putting tab a into slot b now, there's a new film directed by Ray Fiennes. Uh, the White Crow is a drama about Rudolf Nureyev's defection to the West. You can hear my conversation with Rafe after this clip. Everything is OK. Don't worry. Don't worry. Stay with me, Pierre. Stay. They're trying to kidnap me. Keep it calm, please. Look, look, look. If this is a punishment... It's not a punishment. Can I just say, if this is because Rudy spent time going out with me and my friends, can I just say... Never did Rudy say one word against his country, against the government or against the company. Never. Not one single word, ever. OK, OK, just keep it under control, OK? That's a clip from The White Crow, and I'm delighted to say that its director, one of its stars, Rafe Fiennes, uh, joins us on the show. Hello, Rafe, how are Hello you? Hello there, how are you? Very nice to see you. Thank you. There's an extraordinary story that you're telling uh, in this film, much to discuss. Just tell us what it was about the story of this early part of the life of your AF that drew you in, that made you think this is a story that you wanted to be a part it of? It was the force of his personality or the fire of his desire to realise himself as a ballet dancer. I really was introduced to his life reading a biography and the first chapters dealing with his childhood in Ufa, in the central part of Russia, a very deprived childhood, and then his student years in Leningrad and then this extraordinary moment of defecting from Soviet Russia in 1961 at Le Bourget Airport in Paris. And it really sat with me as an extraordinary story with great cinematic potential. I did not come to the story because I had some love about ballet. I was pretty ignorant about ballet. It was just the story of this boy with this extraordinary self-belief and a kind of ferocious messianic desire to will himself to be a great dancer. Where did that come from? Did you get close to that? No, I think it's one of those mysterious things as why does anyone discover this thing in themselves that leads them to do whatever? I think it's just one of those mysteries about humankind that someone suddenly discovers in themselves this intense desire, whether it's to be a dancer or an explorer or a a politician or or an athlete. It's just one of those mysterious things. He was introduced to traditional Bashkirian dances. He's from a Tatar background. His parents would arguably be Muslim. They were Muslim, except the Soviet regime didn't, you know, ban pretty much all all forms of religion. And he was always proud of his Tatar, Asiatic blood. He often felt it gave him this sort of fire and a a strong, almost warrior-like temperament. But he would have been introduced to these traditional Bashkirian dances probably when he was at the equivalent of primary school. And I think he just found that this thing called dancing spoke to him. You can see in young children passions for things. They suddenly focus on a thing that they can't stop doing. And it can either be a passing fad or it just grows and grows and grows. And that's the thing that they they discover they have a gift for. He actually started training quite late 
as a dancer. He had to resist his father's reluctance. It was his mother who I think, a wonderful mother that could identify, here's a boy who has a passion. And I think that's a great thing when a parent goes, I will support this child. I will not be prejudiced about the thing my child wants to do. So she managed to get him into private lessons in Ufa, a retired female ballerina, Anna Udeltsova, I think she was called, who we hint at in the film, who gave him his very, very first ballet lessons. And, and, I we, think see, and we see that in... We see that, that. yes. We we see that. It always really moved me. That What was that first occasion like? As a little child, he would have done traditional dances, but going to his first... I think she probably would have given them for free or something very... They had no money. Um, but she probably just saw the boy had a passion. And I think he was then passed on to a number of women teachers who coached him. He did then appear in supporting dancing parts in the local opera house in Ufa and then got to Moscow and auditioned, I think, for the Bolshoi and for the Kirov and got a place at the Kirov, which is the Leningrad Dance School, which would formerly have been the Imperial Ballet School in pre-revolutionary Russia. So you say you're reading a book. I imagine this is Julie Kavanagh's biography. Yes, that was the leading sort of source. Where else did you go to get close to the kind of person... Nureyev was at this sort of crucial formation of his character. Who, who did you speak to? Who were the sources that you had? We went to St. Petersburg and we met one of the teachers teaching at the Vaganova School, which is the school he went to, was originally the Leningrad Choreographic Institute and then it became the Vaganova after one of the great ballet teachers. That school is thriving. It's one of the most important ballet schools in the world. We went there, and Nikolai Tsizgaridze, who is an ex-dancer and I run in the school, incredibly generous to David and myself, allowing us in to classes and to watch classes. This is David Hare. David Hare, the writer, yes. And we did meet, and I'm now introduced to one of the senior women teachers there, was on the tour in Paris, and she, Nicola, got her into the room, and through translators, she talked to us about being in Paris, being on the bus, and um, experiencing that time with him. Then, with um, Julie Kavanagh's help and Gabby, my producer's help, Gabby effected introductions to the real Clara Son, who is the young Chilean girl of French upbringing, who arguably managed the defection, and the real Clara Son, who is alive and was incredibly helpful and David and I and Gabby talked to her and we effectively interviewed her at length about those days in Paris and Nureyev and also Pierre Lacotte who is still alive and ballet dancer now well-known choreographer also talked to us very forensically about and he's in the film too his character is portrayed by Raphael Personnaz Pierre Lacotte he, he was very untutored in the norms of social intercourse i.e. quite brusque, quite rude, had a naivety and didn't understand. I mean, particularly the French have, you know, have sort of very precise forms of good manners. Well, Rudolf had no sense of that. But what they liked about him was his curiosity and his hunger. Very early on in this project, maybe when you were just reading the Julie Kavanagh book, you mm-hmm. must have thought, how on earth am I going to find my Nureyev? Do I look for a dancer who can act? Mm-hmm. Do I look for an actor who can dance? How did you square that circle? Well, it sort of yeah, initially just seems impossible. Here's a great story that I believe has huge cinematic potential, but how the beep, beep, beep do we find someone to do it? Because he's an extraordinary one-off. Rudolf Nureyev is sort of 
impossible to replicate, you would think, except as we thought about it, well, we thought we, David and I identified, well, this is not Nureyev, the iconic superstar. So we're not, we've not got the pressure to sort of show that thing, which is so well covered in documentaries and so many people have talked about. This is the unformed Nureyev, the, the Nureyev that is forming himself. When David first delivered the first draft of the screenplay, it's an incredible acting part. Yes, there were sequences of ballet performance and ballet rehearsal, but I just thought, as an actor, looking at it, wow, what a great role this is. And, of course, I had to sort of wrestle with the approach to casting it. But I just thought, but we need these scenes where he's in practice and he's dancing, and I just need that truth that it's a dancer's body here. And if I give myself the problem of casting a very good actor who's not a dancer or who can only approximate dance moves and dance variations, I've got to have a body double, and that's immediately you do that. Your shooting time doubles. And we weren't going to have a lot of shooting time because our budget was going to be very, very tight. So I just thought, if I can find a dancer who can act, then if I can do that, then this is the way to go. And so I said to Gabby, who's producing, let's press the button on the huge casting search. So out of St. Petersburg, we sent a wonderful casting director, Ala Patel, in the two, and also a young lady from Moscow too, to go to all the Russian, the major Russian academies and ballet companies just to look, and they put the word out online, so they immediately all the dance world knew. And initially, Ala saw a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people self-taped. And Oleg Ivienka, who plays Nureyev, was on the radar quite early on. He did send in an acting tape, which was okay. I, I couldn't tell. And I realised in the process that I can't really tell about performance as I'm in the room with someone and directing them, challenging them, or offering them up some kind of idea about how to play a scene. And then, finally, when we had got a short list of about four dancers, he being one of them, we screen-tested in St. Petersburg. And I got home from St. Petersburg, ran through all the screen tests on my computer and he so quickly leapt out as yeah. being really this this young man can do it is what I thought we're going to run out of time I just want to mention one thing which is not crucial to understanding the making of the film mm. but really really struck me when mm. I was sitting there enjoying it uh, enormously and that is the team that you assembled to produce the sound mm -hmm. of this film not just the soundtrack which is stunning from Elan yeah, yeah. but it's what we hear we hear it, it's the handbag snap, it's ballet shoes on floorboards, it's a jacket going onto a chair and coming off a chair, yeah. and it, it feels as though we're in the room. I don't know who you got to do that, but it's stunning. Well, the um, soundscape is very important to me, and um, we had a great sound team. I love the final mix is when you put all those elements together, and often you're stripping away stuff. But I've always, ever since the first film I've made, and actually I love, I love the power. It's, in a way, it's its own kind of music. So it was really important for me that there's a scene on a train at the beginning. I wanted the noise and the scrape of metal. I wanted that to, to have a strong force in the way we could feel that this train is moving, the machinery of a train. Uh, yes, you're right, the landing of the dancers. Because interestingly, when dancers leap up, they can leap up and express this great lightness, but they, you can't deny the effect of gravity. So, you know, even if you go to the ballet, I mean, obviously they want to land lightly, but there's always that interesting thing as their body hits the, the floor. You hear this, the weight of the body. But everything, everything in that is 
we spent a lot of time, and I, I get very obsessive about how you map the sound and, and, and the effect it can have. Also, you know, we place off sounds in corridors to give the sense of, for instance, when young Rudy arrives in a communal apartment block in Russia to meet the young friends I was talking about, we hear voices off to give a sense of there's a life going on in the stairwells or off. So all that stuff is really yeah. important. Well, it all uh, goes together to make an extraordinary film, and uh, Ray Fiennes, we appreciate you speaking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's obviously just part of my conversation with Ray Fiennes. You can hear a longer version uh, of that interview on the podcast, which will be available after the show, uh, unless you're listening to the podcast, in which case that was the longer interview uh, with Ray Fiennes, and, and The White Crow is his new movie. I'll just remind you of something you said ages ago when, when you said when people come in to talk about a film that they're passionate about, mm-hmm. they talk like that. And I remember there was uh, there was an occasion when R- Rafe was in talking about something that he was... He was talking about Harry Potter, and he was talking about the Elder Wand and yes. all that kind of stuff, and he, <laughs> he, was, he thought, I don't I don't know. It's a thing with the what's it. No, no, no. This is passionate and engaged Ray Fiennes. I mean, you'll review it next week because The White Crow is out. Yeah, it sounds interesting. And I can't remember um, another film by a British director which is mainly in a foreign language. So it's overwhelmingly in Russian. He speaks Russian. He learnt Russian a couple of years ago. And he and he speaks Russian. And it is largely... Because he says, you know, you can't... The days are gone when... British people can make movies where you just speak English but in a foreign <laughs> Funny So he absolutely insisted. Obviously, it makes it more commercially tough yeah. proposition. But anyway, so that's uh, Ray Fiennes talking The White Crow. Mark will review it when it comes out on next week's programme. Yep. Stuff that's out this week. Right, let's try and run through a few films. So Fisherman's Friends, this sort of fancifully sentimental drama, which is kind of inspired by, rather than closely based on the true story of the, of the singing sensation group. Of the same name, yes. I think it's aiming for local hero. It ends up closer to Swimming With Men, but then I actually kind of rather liked Swimming With Men, um, and I was more... I. I it's that thing that I found this quite charming. So Daniel Mays is a London record company executive. He goes with his boss, Troy, uh, played by Noel Clark, for this sort of this uh, weekend down in Port Isaac. Uh, Troy is played by Noel Clark, who has decided to play Troy as a, a, an Amer- a figure from American 70s exploitation cinema. And I could just imagine Noel going, this is how I'm doing it, and everyone else back off because I'm doing it this way, which is kind of fun. Um, whilst he was, Remember that time when, whenever Jason Isaacs was in a film, he'd do it in a different accent because he wanted to sort of spread the thing around. He's so very good at it. Yeah, he's very, very good All at it. All right, them. Jason. So anyway, so they get down there. While they're there, they see the Fishman's Friends. These Fishman's are a singing group performing on, uh, you know, uh, just, just by the sea, performing sea shanties. And for a joke, Troy tells Danny that he has to, he has to sign them up. And then he leaves him in the lurch. And by the time he finds out that he's been set up, He's already made all these promises to everyone, including Toppence Middleton's boarding housekeeper, whose dad is involved in the group, about his good intentions. So now he can't let them down. But actually, more importantly, he's being seduced by the local beauty of Cornwall and by the port and the, by the pleasures of wearing chunky knitwear in a pub and having it's a local hero. <laughs> exactly. And yes, you half expect Burt Lancaster to be you know, on the end of a phone and getting to turn up in a helicopter and asking him about the Northern Lights. So he makes it his mission to promote and indeed record the group. Here's a clip. Think. Hey, you're right. It sounds great. 
Although I was picking up a little bit of interference in the last verse. Might be me pacemaker. <laughs> well, you don't want to be turning that off, Father. <laughs> Okay, so you know you get the general tone of it. It's not this is not it's not subtle. It's not a hard hitting documentary. It's one of those things in which its sense of authenticity is occasionally a little bit Ewan McGregor's accent in Brass Off, and occasionally a little bit all the 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 the, the, the use of slang in the Englishman that went up a hill and came went up the hill and came down a mountain. Um, the River Tamar is invoked as the River Tamar over and over again. Nobody says anything like directly without it being explained what that's about. And there's a subplot about a local pub being in financial danger, which seems to have been put there entirely to create this sort of tension between love and money because that's working for dramatic purposes. I mean, the only thing that bothered me was there's a lot of scenes when they're singing and you can see the instruments, but they're not playing the instruments, but you can hear the instruments. So either somebody had an iPod there, they're playing the instruments too, or somebody didn't think you have to pick the instruments up to be playing them. But, you know, if you want to take against it, there's plenty of ammunition in the film to do so, but why would you want to? It's kind of charming and kind of sweet and uh, I succumb to its touristy silliness and enjoyability. I mean, if if you want the authentic voice of Cornish filmmaking, look at somebody like Mark Jenkins, whose film Bait was the Toast of Berlin just a couple of weeks ago. If you want something that is, you know, that embraces you like a warm sweater and has those sea shanties, then this pretty much does that. It is... It is the very definition of of, of soft soaped and uh, you know and, and and contrived in the same way as, as swimming with men was, or even in the same way as finding your feet was. And heaven knows, I I, I found those charming yeah. enough. Well, there'll be a lot of people who are hoping for the best because they've grown to love fishermen yeah. over a long period of time. Yeah. You know, they've followed their story or they've yeah. been at Port Isaac or they've been to folk festivals yeah. or yeah. whatever. So they're really, really wanting this to work. Yeah. Well, I it is it is charming. And I know that, that 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 word always sort of makes me, but that's what it is. It's charming. Okay. And a hit? Who knows? I mean, honestly, who knows? I, I, I think it looks like it's, you know, like it, it'll play well, but I have absolutely no idea. I mean, would obviously. You, okay, on the next journey down, down to southwest. Of down to southwest, yeah. Down to southwest. Would you put the soundtrack on in your car? Oh, yeah, but that's a, the Fisherman's Friends records are because I like, you know, Ken Russell once made a film about sea shanties and, you know, I like a good shanty. Anyway, uh, also out this week, Under the Silver Lake, which is the follow-up feature from uh, David Robert Mitchell who made It Follows. Remember It Follows, the horror movie? I, know you, I remember you talking about, talked it, about it. it and being I love a horror movie, I wouldn't have seen it. So Andrew Garfield is kind of wastrel in LA, plays Sam. He does nothing other than sit around and and spy on his neighbour, one of one his neighbours, one of whom feeds her parrot topless. And then this glam new tenant called Sarah, played by Riley Keough, moves in. He spies on her too, and it would be creepy. But obviously, oh, it's Andrew Garfield, so that's fine. And we're meant to think, oh, you know, rear window. But in case you hadn't noticed, it's okay, because a little bit later on, they'll go to a gravestone where there is a massive grave with the word Hitchcock written on it in really big letters. If you hadn't, oh, yeah, I'm, get, well, I'm, getting, I'm supposed to be getting there. So he nearly gets this thing together with his neighbour, and then she disappears, and there's a mystery, like the mystery of the Silver Lake comic book fanzine, some sort of zine thing which he reads, which seems to mirror the events of real life, including the bizarre activities of a serial dog, uh, dog killer. Okay, here's a clip. Come on in! The water's so refreshing! Now, I don't know about no. you, uh, because, and I haven't seen the film, no. but something about that scene tells me that something bad's about to happen. Mm. 
Yeah, the rest of the film is about to continue playing. So through the act of wandering listlessly from one kooky set piece to the next, he goes into a comic store, he has a conversation, he goes to an outdoor screening of some unsaleable film, he inevitably ends up at the James Dean Observatory because it's that film. He realises that pop culture is full of hidden messages that will reveal the truth about the world. And the film is so many questions, you know, what's the parrot next door saying? What happened to the girl who disappeared? What's the cosmic significance of the old Playboy magazine that he stole from his father and now keeps by his bed, which should be creepy? But it's Andrew Garfield, so nobody cares. Why is it the rock band who was supposed to be the biggest thing in the world on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine looked like the outtake footage from Stardust that David Essex said, we're not having that in the movie, it looks far too naff. Why is it that the whole film makes me think Eyes Wide Shut isn't as bad a movie as I thought it was the first time round? What will the director do when David Lynch turns up at his door and says, oi, I want all my ideas back? Most importantly, what's going on? Who cares? And when will it end? When I came out of the screening, I, which I thought was, I thought it was terrible. I came out of the screening and I went, that was terrible. And a friend, a critic friend said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, it's Southland Tales, isn't it? And she said, oh, you're only saying that because Pete Bradshaw said that. I said, did Pete Bradshaw say that? I haven't read Pete Bradshaw's review, but it's Southland Tales, which is the film that the guy who made Donnie Darko made. So I then Googled, it turns out everybody, it turns out everybody has said Southland Tales. And you know why? Because, I mean, I admire Peter Bradshaw very much. He's absolutely spot on. It is Southland Tales, but everyone said it. So like Southland Tales, it's made by a director who made a really good film and, uh, you know, he made Donnie Darko and Robert Mitchell, David Robert Mitchell made It Follows. Like Southland Tales, it eschewed the simplicity of its original for this much more expansive, you know, much more overly peopled, elongated running time. Like Southland Tales, it was at Cannes where it is, you know, up for in competition. And also like Southland Tales, you sit there thinking, I'm going to have to go back and revisit my review of the previous film because I must have missed something the first time around because this is all over the place. It's utterly self-indulgent, totally messy, uh, doesn't make any sense. It is... It's like somewhere in the middle of it, you think there's this adolescent mishmash of comics, pop culture, over-signposted old film nods, patient testing, sort of cult, cod, obscuro dreariness that makes you really long for Roger Corman to come in with a big stick and an exploding helicopter and say, take an hour and a half out of it. Also, it's casually sexist in the most terrible way. This, you know, every woman has to you know, walk around in a state of undress. They're all dream girls or, or hookers or obscure objects of desire. And, you know, that's why. Oh, well, because it's, you know, it's, it's self-referential and postmodern. That famous thing about postmodernism mean never having to say you're sorry. It's so tooth-grindingly boring that even the score, which actually in its essence separated from all this, I thought was quite good, sounded really, really irritating. It's up there on a par with John Borman making Deliverance and then making Zardoz, or Michael Cimino making Deer Hunter and then making Heaven's Gate. The difference is, you know, Deer Hunter was a hit and Zardoz is actually quite funny. And there will be stoner geeks who go, oh, yeah, man, it's a great, it's like this film about all the things about pop culture is all, you know, and yeah, and I, I am Andrew Garfield and I'm really hot sitting around spying on people. And then to them, I say, listen, your prayers have been answered. They've made the movie that you want. Now take the movie, go and hide in the bunker because the apocalypse is coming and let us close the bunker and put a big heavy piece of furniture on it so we never have to see you or the film ever again. So you quite liked it. <laughs> well, it was rubbish. Well, here's, here's the thing. Yep. Andrew Garfield is an actor. Yes. Of some considerable. Of some considerable, yeah. And, uh, and I've interviewed him. He's a nice guy. So... They must have hooked him in with something. So what? What's so he's doing this movie? He agreed to do it. He yeah. looked at the script. He must know. Well, what. I mean, presumably because it follows is really great. This is Eyes Wide Shut follows. Eyes Wide Shut follows. Okay, and what's okay. it called again? It's called Under the Silver Lake. 
Right. Not far enough under for my right. money. So, okay. So we're we're just here for another few minutes. Uh, we have a shorter edition of the show because of the horse racing, which is on the way. Meantime, what men want, which is this gender reversed uh, remake of. What women want, you know, the one in which Mel Gibson could hear the thoughts and blah blah blah. I remember blah. that. Yeah, yes. Okay, fine. So this time, Tragedy Henson is the one who acquires the magical ability. She's a career woman. She's a sports agent, but she doesn't get the recognition she deserves because she's in a company which is male dominated. She's got um, an assistant who basically runs her life and a collection of kind of off the peg girlfriends who think that she's too focused to understand men. Then she goes to a kind of hen party. A psychic gives her a special reading, gives her some tea, and then she gets banged on the head. And next thing she can hear men's inner thoughts. Here's a clip. I feel weird after last night. Yeah, that's what happens when tequila meets desperation. Okay, stop doing that. Stop doing what? Talking without moving your mouth and saying things you shouldn't be saying to your boss. I swear on my life I would never say anything disrespectful or inappropriate to you ever. Which is more than I can say for you. Right there. You just did it. You said more than I can say for you. I heard you say I, it. But, but I, I, I didn't say it. Holy, can you hear my inner thoughts? I can hear your inner thoughts. You get the general tone from that. So the thing is, I mean, it sounds to be, kooky. Yeah, it's kooky, crazy, and you know, and a little bit overegged. So the thing is, I do think Tragedy Henson is very good, and I think she deserves it's got a high-profile vehicle of her own. You've seen before in things like um, in Hidden Figures, which I know you really, really liked. I don't think this does her talents many favours. The script, the script is limp and formulaic. The direction is, you know, suggests that the prime. It suggests that the film feels that the primary audience will be in a state of advanced refreshment at the beginning, and so won't need very much to get laughing. So um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I remember going to see Bad Mums and enjoying it. And Bad Mums, this ain't. Um, as always, the, the the thing that lets you know that it's nothing like as good as it should be is the bit at the end when you get the outtakes. And there's a series of outtakes from talking to the medium. And actually, the outtakes are funnier than what's in the film. And that is always a really bad sign. It's not... Um, it's just kind of disappointing because you think what I really want this to be is a, you know, rip roaring in your face, funny, sassy comedy. And it just felt like, oh, OK, no, we're not getting that. We're getting a, a, a couple of giggles every now and then, but really not much more than that. It did feel very plodding and ponderous. Disappointing then. Disappointing. Yes. Okay. He's like, let everyone down, as you say. In, you, you would uh, in imagine Benjamin. that What Men Want would have come out a whole lot sooner because it's been so long since the Mel Gibson film. Yeah, a very, very long time. I mean, it, I can't even remember whether we were doing this show when it came out. What year was it? I can't remember. It was a long time ago. One of our top operatives is... I was, just trying to, I was just trying to remember which state Mel Gibson's career was in at that point. Can I get another film in? Yeah, yeah, it was plenty of time. Okay, you thought four whole minutes. Okay, so... Ben is back. So a few weeks ago, we had Beautiful Boy. Remember that? Which is the story of a parent and a child torn apart by addiction. It's based on the memoirs of David Sheff and his son, Nick Sheff. So now we have this, Ben is back, which is a story of a parent and child torn apart by um, addiction. This is directed by Peter Hedges and starring Lucas Hedges. And so like Timothy Chalamet's Nick in Beautiful Boy, Ben has been struggling with rehab when he turns up at home as Christmas, is appro- as Christmas approaches and he isn't universally welcomed, Juni- Julie Roberts is his mother. She throws her arms around him. You know, she buys into the stories of how well he's doing, how well his sponsor says he's OK and good to go home for the holidays. 
Um, Catherine Newton's his sister. She wants to know why it is that if mum is so happy and confident, the first thing she does is go into the house, hide all the money, hide all the medication, hide all the jewellery. Um, the stepfather is attempting to negotiate a path between his wife and the stepson. He wants Ben to leave, but he doesn't want to upset his wife. So in the end, she, they agree that he can stay under certain rules. Okay. Here's the deal, and it is not negotiable. You get a day. Are you sure? So long as you pass the drug test I'm about to administer, stay clean while you're here, and that this time tomorrow you are back in sober living. Yeah, okay. Now, I'm not done. These are our terms, and I don't give a if you hate these rules. You do not leave my sight ever. You do not close the door to your room, where, by the way, I will be sleeping on the floor. And if you try to sneak off, if your bed so much as makes a squeak, I will be all over you because for the next 24 hours, you are mine, all mine. Got it? I got it. Good. So as with Beautiful Boy, this does have a, a, you know, a, a very honest take on the the setbacks of the path to recovery. You know, Ben tells his mum at one point, you should never trust a drug addict and then goes on to prove that that's true. Even, you know, even when that truth causes pain to the loved ones, it's, you know, it is, it's a truth which runs through those, those films. There is a dramatic contrivance involving the dog disappearing, which involves Ben and his mum to get in a car together and revisit the scenes of his past. And it is a dramatic device, but it allows her to see for the first time the reality of the life that he led when he was in the middle of all this stuff. And although that device smacks of artifice, somehow Roberts sells it because her her face her expression her demeanor as she sees what it is that her son has been had been living with is really convincing and the film does a nice balancing act of portraying him as both a victim and a symptom of the addiction he's riddled with guilt about his past about what he did you know in his in his previous life and how you know she, that at one point he says you can't come with me because if you do you'll discover things about me that will mean you won't love me anymore and in fact in many ways it's a film about the persistence of parental love and I think Julia Roberts does a very good job of doing that challenging thing of portraying somebody who loves unconditionally of standing by somebody you know tough love but standing by them because you are a parent it's very much an actor's piece it's you know it's the filmmaking itself is fairly unremarkable but it does remind you that when julia roberts is given the you know when julia roberts when julia roberts is good she's really good so I'm intrigued, actually. That's uh, I'm, normally I. But we we get to this part of the program, and I'm thinking I know precisely what you're going to do. And when we get to the movie of the week conversation, uh, I think well, it's it's a nail. On. I think I know what I'm going to do. Was it a tough decision this week? Yeah, it's almost impossible. It's a very very odd week. Okay. Well, um, give me. Why don't you do it in three, two, one? <laughs> no. What, what we'll say it together. No, 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 no. I want, I want um, something in position three. Something in position. I can't three. do that, Simon. Why can't you do? Because that? it's too complicated. Because it's such a messy week. It's such a strange. It's such a strange all over the place week. I mean, it's hard enough to choose one because, you know, it's a very, very odd week. I know, and it is an odd week because we're in an odd time. Yeah, we are. Um, uh, next week we're going back to normal. But okay, so uh, this has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live. Your movie of the week is. No, no, don't, don't, don't tell me. Your movie of the week is in second place Fisherman's Friends but in first place it's going to be Ben is Back that'll do fine is that right? am I speaking for you? 
I will allow you to speak for me on what this. What would you have said if I just said, what's the movie of the week? I was... I, Benjamin is back. Well, that was pretty good. And uh, Ray finds in his full glory, as opposed to the people who are listening on air. Or, you know, if they just heard the, the original, it was like five minutes ago. Yeah. What's the point of that? It's Because it, it's, it's, I haven't interviewed him. Is Rafe intense in, in, in person? Is he an intense presence? Yeah, 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 yeah. He is... Sort of magnetic, sort of, you know... Uh, he's, 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 does he have a nose, or is that... Is, he, Yes, he has a nose. So the Voldemort thing. He doesn't have a Voldemort nose. Okay. He's very, he's very serious-minded. But if you, as you said before, he's very passionate about the projects, and I think often he's invested, he's invested his own money in his own productions. So, yeah. You know, uh, and he spent a lot of time, uh, on, as he said in the interview, you know, trying to get this right, trying to find the right person to play Rudolf Nureyev. You know, so he, he's absolutely. I just think the thing, the thing that's interesting about him is holds that... your eyes for a long time. Oh, okay. He comes in and he's saying hello to you. He's um, looking at you. Yeah. You don't, don't look away. No, I want you to look away now because I actually feel awkward about this now. Don't look away. Kill the spare. <laughs> don't look away. That's what happens. <laughs> would the would, would, would the that's what, See, and that's the thing. What I was trying to get to was for somebody who's so into he's very funny. I mean, he's very funny in Grand Budapest Hotel, but he is absolutely hilarious in uh, in um, in the film that's not called Barton Fink. It's, not called, it's Barton. called. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. No, what's it called? That's, that's how people What's remember. it called? Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar, thank oh. you. TV movie of the week. Ian Johnston says... Oh, I've I'll so be, many senior moments. I'll be watching Boyhood, but Norway is one of your finest. I'll be watching Boyhood to see if it stands up to the test of a second viewing. I saw it when it was released and found it to be incredibly affecting. So hopefully that will be the case when the novelty is worn off. I think Mark will opt for Boyhood, but I'd personally go for one of the two very underrated action movies on the list, Edge of Tomorrow and Die Hard with a Vengeance. Andy Bradshaw says Edge of Tomorrow is on. We've had Edge of Tomorrow as a... As How a, is that not the one you would go for if just to hear the little scream and then squelch when Cruz rolls under the truck? Yeah, we've, we've, we've had Edge of Tomorrow as the, as the TV movie of the week in the not-too-distant past, which is why we can't do it again. Um, John Cresswell, bombshell because I saw someone ask why there was a mural of a film star in my friend's computer lab showing how still too few people know Hedy Lamarr's contribution. As Sinead Wheeler, Steve Beatty and Tim Belito-Jones all point out that it's Hedley Lamarr, not Hedy Lamarr. Johnny Andrews, Mark would choose Unbreakable, but I'd go for the Beatles eight days a week. Brilliant glimpse into the band when they were the biggest thing in the world. Uh, you do know that's a Blazing Saddles thing, but move on. Never mind, carry on. Worth watching just for the part where they stand up to promoters who want to segregate the audience in the Deep South fab work boys. Mike Everest, Think, uh, Thing from Another World for me really captures the chaotic nature of people talking over each other whilst in a high-stress situation. The scene where they... <laughs> who, who, that's who would, very good. Who would possibly thought... The scene where they work out what the thing actually is and its closer relationship to plant life is genuinely chilling without actually appearing to be that. Cracking film. Thomas Stay says Mark will probably go for Bombshell and it would be a good choice. However, I opt for Whiskey Galore as it's huge fun. Seb McMillan, Unbreakable, followed by a monologue on why it's better than Glass. And Zach Collum, call me uncultured for not seeing the rest, but regardless, it's Die Hard. Bruce on top form and good old Jeremy Irons chewing the scenery. I only wish they'd stop the series there. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, you know, I'm going to go for, um, I suppose it's saying, Headley. It's Headley. 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 Um, I'm going to go for the Beatles eight days a week because I really enjoyed it. And I've been listening to quite a lot of Beatles driving around recently. And I'm going to go for that, which is on uh, Saturday at 9pm on More 4. Because it, 
I thought it was just a really, really good compilation of the Beatles playing. Live. I mean, you you loved it, right? Mm-hmm. I think Ron Howard came on the show and talked about it, didn't he? Did uh, he? Yeah. Yeah, and it, well, I just I thought it was terrific. So I'm going to go for the Beatles eight days a week, although I love Edge Tomorrow. We did it recently. And do you, you, you understand the Heady Headley thing, right? No, remind me. So in Blazing Saddles, he's called Headley, and people keep calling him Heady, and he says, Headley! Headley Lamar, that's what the joke's about. That's right, what I was saying. I, was, I wasn't sure whether you were pl- you were playing it with a completely straight bat, but you. But it's okay. It's fine. No, it's just being dumb. All right, so the same thing. So Norway, dumb Headley. TV of the movie. Of the, <clears throat> TV of the movie of the week. So bad, it's bad. Bevan Mortimer. I think Mark has let go his anger about the Transformers franchise and found his inner peace with Michael Bay. So I think he'll go for movie forty-three. I feel a horrible person for saying it, but I actually found it quite funny in places in a juvenile way. No, you didn't. John White, now movie 43 is one of my favourite movies of all time. I've rarely laughed so much at such an awful movie. I knew every step of the way it was terrible, and I loved it. I've been collecting gold coins ever since. Don't get that either. Neville Martin, sorry, but movie 43 is one of the worst things I have ever seen. There's no Clash of the Titans here. That's like putting an ant up against a giant's foot. How... How the hell did all those cat actors and actresses agree to be a part of something so shockingly bad? Hayley Langen, when my husband and I watched Movie 43 in the cinema, we had an unlimited pass and had seen everything else. You still wanted your money back. Literally, half the audience of around 60 people had walked out by the end. The only other time I've seen someone walk out mid-film was during The Passion of the Christ. And Aaron Carey, Gangster Squad, because it had potential to be really good. The rest of the movies, you knew what to expect okay. before watching. Okay. What is our TV movie of the week? So bad it's bad. Movie 43, because I want Green Book to say on the poster from one of the directors of Movie 43. That's the only reason? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's horrible. When can I avoid it's it? It's so horrible. It's such a horrible film. It's, you can avoid it at Monday at 10 past 3 in the morning on Channel 5. It's very easy to avoid. It is so horrible. That won't be picking up it's, a lot of people. No, it's, I mean, it, it is. And it is. The big question is, why are all these people agreeing to be in it? You know, what terrible secret do the directors have on them? It's just, it's just grotesque. Uh, now, there's a movie that you haven't actually reviewed yet. Do you want to tell us? Just because we had a shorter show. Did, oh, OK. Did you want to tell us about Girl or did you not want to tell us about Girl? No, it's perfectly fine. So, um, Is uh, that it? Pardon me? Perfectly fine. Is that no, no, it's like it's perfectly fine if you want me to, if you, if, if you would like me to say a few words. So this is um, an award-winning film from Lucas Dont, which is inspired by but not based on the story of a, not entirely based on the story of a trans teenager following her dreams to become a ballet dancer. Victor Polster is Lara, who's this 15-year-old who's just won a provisional place at an elite ballet school, but told that the provision is to see whether she can keep up with the other girls because the trial also coincides with the onset of hormone therapy as she begins to transition. So she'll have to work even harder than the other girls whose feet have been prepared for on-point work. She's kind of comparatively late to ballet. So at school, she has to deal with the inquisitive stares of the classmates. But at home, she has a very supportive father and a young brother who... um, with whom she the, the, she has a relationship, which I, th- I thought was really, really sort of convincingly captured on screen. So the film is about ballet on the one hand, and therefore it necessarily focuses on the body. And the, the film has actually caused some controversy. There's been um, there's, there's there's been some controversy since it played in Cannes about the casting of uh, of a non trans actor in a trans role. Also, the fact that it's uh, that the um, the writer and director is is cisgender and non trans. And so there have been there has been some some dislike of the film. I have to say, I liked it. 
I thought it was a kind of rites of passage, coming of age movie that I felt had a sort of universal story about somebody wanting to define themselves and the way in which it used ballet and the rigours of ballet, the physical rigours of ballet as a sort of metaphor for the central character's desire and determination to, you know, to take control of their own life and to be the person that they want to be. I, I thought that worked well. The film is let down somewhat by a scene, by a late in the day scene of... Um, it's a plot spoiler, stop listening, but there's no other way. There's a, there's a scene of self-harm, which I felt unbalanced the drama, which up until that point I thought had been very controlled and very measured and very sympathetic and very, um, you know, very easy to engage with. I felt that it did lose its way in that last sequence. But overall, I thought it was, it, it was a moving and sympathetic coming-of-age tale, sort of rites of passage tale with a very good central performance. David and Genevieve... Say, dear learned gentlemen, after an enormously long and tortuous journey, your award, your podcast, award, oh, yeah. has arrived with members of the church in snowy Minnesota. There you go. There's oh, wow, well, look at that. Of the award, with David and Genevieve, in the aforementioned snowy Minnesota. That is definitely snowy. We have now dispatched it back to the United Kingdom so that its journey may regain some haste. <laughs> so it's been... It's, it's, it's been it's, everywhere. It's going to be pretty battered by the time it makes it back here do you think we'll ever see it again um i think we will yes we could make a movie actually this is a movie if you love something set it free yeah do do Oh, that was a sting. I just yeah. realised it was... Sorry, I thought your mate Sting, I thought you were going to get that. Yeah, but it wasn't very tuneful, so, uh, you know, obviously I'm finely tuned to just hear the harmony. How's Sting's shirt doing for you? Sting's shirt is still in my wardrobe. Child, th- uh, child one has worn it. <laughs> really? Since, yes. It's a little bit over the top, it has to be said, <laughs> surprisingly. Anyway, uh, we're nearly done. Uh, just to say that um, Jordan Peele's on the show next week. That's She's great. Us, which I've seen. Yep. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Sure when be. you've seen it, will you text me and say you were right or you were wrong, depending on whether you liked it or not? Yeah. I often text you and say things and you don't reply. That's just... so, oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry I couldn't reply. I was on air. Yeah, that's usually a pretty good reason. Anyway, are you ready? <clears throat> Here we go. It's our DVD. Other text when Quiet. I'm on air. Quiet. It's DVD of the week time. Hey, <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Sam. Now, look, one of the choices for DVD of the week is Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Wald. <laughs> Grindelwald. Wald. Perhaps not a classic of the oeuvre, not least for the plot holes that you and I discussed at length after the screening. I mean, Minerva McGonagall is a professor in a film that takes place eight years before she was born. Before she was born? And when Newt said Axio Niffler... And it worked. Remember, you told me why that was odd? That's right. You can't summon live creatures. And what's this? Dumbledore teaching defence against the dark arts. Everybody knows that Dumbledore was Hogwarts' transfiguration teacher before becoming headmaster. In Crimes of Grindelwald, Vold, however, <laughs> he's the Dada teacher. Now, of course, as in D.A.D.A. Now, of course, Dumbledore could have switched from Dada, D.A.D.A. to transfiguration before he became headmaster. But for that never to be mentioned at any point in the movie, considering how vital Dada is to... It's something of a mystery, don't you think, Mark? And then, the last thing that's been gnawing away at me... Go on. ...is wizards apparating inside Hogwarts. It is very clear in the books that this is 
What, Mark? What is it? Uh, you, they can't do it. It's absolutely verboten. But, I mean, yeah, it's an right. extremely serious security that's breach. That's right. I could not believe it when a bunch of auras actually appeared. Don't get me started on the mirror of Erised. OK, well, if you insist. <laughs> when, <laughs> when Dumbledore looks into the mirror of Erised and sees a flashback of himself and Grindelwald Vold making a certain <laughs> promise, what's the problem with that, Mark? What's the problem? Uh, That's right. The mirror of Erised doesn't show flashback. No! Pensive does that. It's like it's written by somebody who hasn't read the original books. Apart from that, it was OK. The mirror of Erised is that great thing because you look in it and you... See what you desire. Is that the one? That's one that Harry sits in front of and sees his very, parents, right? Very early on. By the way, do you know where you can find Dumbledore's army? Go on. Up his sleevey. <laughs> anyway, Jason Phillips has to be the fog. First, John Carpenter... What are hippies for? <clears throat> Hang your leggies on. Has to be the fog. First John Carpenter film I saw that really made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It simply cannot be Widows, as it was a truly awful film. What? That left me cold and seemed to have no elements that would come close to living up to the Scorsese-esque hype. Wrong. 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 Brad Wilkinson says, Widows and a Carpenter quadruple bill of The Fog, Escape from New York, Prince of Darkness, and They Live, for me. Not They Live For Me. They Live, <laughs> they live for, me. for Me. I'm confident Mark will go with Widows for the new release, but it is a good week for reissues, with Ringu, Basketball Diaries and Death in Venice also available. I do think Mark's love of genre and John Carpenter will win out, though, with either Escape from New York or They Live, but not for me. Getting the nod. And Tommy Peters, I'm still upset that Widows didn't get the reception it deserved. I saw it twice in the theatre, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. It was multi-layered, fun, thrilling, chock full of great performances. The intersection of race, class, politics and power all served as a lens through which... As a what? As a lens. lens through which grief is explored. <laughs> anyway, what is our... That was a long one. What's our DVD of the week? Well, definitely for the new release DVD of the week, I'm going for Widows because... It, I, I mean, Widows? Yeah, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I don't understand... I mean, I don't understand people not liking it as much as, as we did. You loved it, right? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, you know, it was, oh, well, I saw the TV series. Yeah, so did I. It wasn't there. so anyway. So Widows is the new one. For the old ones, I I'm, I'm it's just terrible. I'm going to go for the Ring Special Edition. The Ring Special Edition. And you know, I I think it's now. What are we now? 2019. I think it may now be 20 years ago that I spoiled the ending of of Ring Ringu on uh, Channel Four. So I think I'm going to draw a moratorium. Yes. On apologising for it. Yeah, don't ever apologise. I, I don't want to hear you apologise. I've never heard you apologise for it, but anyway, don't... don't Not going to apologise for it anymore. What Women Want was 2000, so it was before us, by the way. Just to make Oh, OK, that's right. So it was it was in the wilderness years. The wilderness years when you had no work. I had work. no work at all. at home, smoking capstan full strength. <laughs> <laughs> and knitting. <laughs> Why was I knitting? And composing revolutionary anthems <laughs> for the far left of the New Forest. Anyway. Well, after the new forest, what like Burley? Yeah. Anyway, so look, that's us. That's us. Now we got to get out because Evan Davis needs to get in. Does he? Is it Evan? Who What's are we on? getting out for? Why do we have to get out? What happens here at five? five a quarter two. We got to get out. The World Business Report. Oh, We're right. not having Luxembourg by Elvis Costello after all. World Business. Thank you. This is the best track on Trust. I got some. World, I got some World Business. Yeah, read it out. Hello, I'm Julian Marshall. On today's programme, British MPs are having another series of votes. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> thing, uh, thing, then a trail, and then another trail. 
The outcue should say coming up at nine. Anyway. Okay, right, wait. What? Here we go. Oh, you might wake up in Luxembourg, which is a country and a province of Belgium. Let's leave Luxembourg and cross the border. Where are we? We're Luxembourg. in Luxembourg. You see, that's the thing. That's what this song's about. And then they go to Norway, and spelt with a K. <laughs> that's where Knorr sources comes from, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. Was, it was a word that I always used to spell with. Knee's got a K, hasn't it? Yes. Knowledge has got a K. Yes. But Norway doesn't. But, no, but there's another word that I always used to spell with a K, and it doesn't have a K. Norwich? <laughs> Normal for Norwich. Anyway. Did I tell you this? Have I ever told you this story? There almost certainly isn't time for it. Whatever the story is. And there isn't any time. So give us the first line. And that's literally just the first line. So the bottlers were doing a gig in Norwich. That's it. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back next week. BBC Radio 5 Live. Available now on BBC Sounds. Paradise. How many people did your dad kill? Silas Dwayne Boston was arrested in Paradise, charged with killing two people almost four decades ago. A nine-part podcast series uncovering the truth behind the murder of Christopher Farmer and Peter Frampton. I wanted to let him go, but I knew that if I tried to do that, that he would kill Russ and I as well. Available first on BBC Sounds. How deep do you want to go with this story? 